This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I am his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we wrestle with the potential interpretations of what is happening in the beginning of John 6. That's exactly what we're here to do. We're going to wrestle with the potential of interpretations because, Brent... I have worked on this episode longer than most. I won't I won't get I won't let people know how long that is. <laughs> I'll just say I have worked on this episode much longer than any I I golly, I think longer than any episode. I'm trying to figure out what I think is going on in this passage and I I've got nothing. All right? I so I I've put in the time. This isn't me being ill prepared. Um, maybe I should have given it to somebody else on the teaching team. I'm sure Josh Bosse would just kill this passage, man. He would just be like, boom. <laughs> but uh, here I am trying to be like, all right, Josh, I, I see you. I'm going to, I'm going to put in my time. And I just, I, I am just lost as can be. So here's what we got. I'm sure Josh reserves the right to come back and talk about this again later. So <laughs> he'll be like, I'll fix that. I mean, I don't so know when we'll replace be. this episode. Don't hold your breath, but you know. You may hear Josh on this passage at some point. Who knows? Oh, man. I don't even know. I'm sure you may not all hear it, but I will, and it will be glorious. Um, and if it's real glorious, we will insist that he, I don't know what we'll do with our posting pattern, but we'll insist that he shares it with the rest of us. Hey, you know what? I, I, it, if the gospel writers can uh, move things around in the timeline, I think we can move things around in the timeline. Speaking of which, I've never heard of a better segue. Um, that's part of the problem in this passage. Okay, so let's let me let's talk about deep breaths, everybody. Let's talk about what we got in front of us. Okay, I have in front of me something that you don't ever typically see me ever work with. And it's definitely not a translation you ever see me quote. I hate this translation so much. Um, I'm going to offend so many people. I have Thomas and Gundry's Harmony of the Gospels in front of me. (laughs) All right. Now you can put that in the show notes, Brent. Do it. And here's why. Because you know we've talked at length in session three uh, about how why we weren't going to attempt to harmonize the Gospels because we don't think. And today's going to be a prime example of that prime example of why if you try to harmonize this, you are going to screw this up. Now, having said that, this is a prime example of why the Harmony of the Gospels can be so helpful and so useful. Because what the Harmony of the Gospels does, Thomas and Gundry's, it's one of two main ones that you'll see out there, is it's going to put, like this is, the story we're going to start off with here is the feeding of the 5,000. That is a story that shows up in all four Gospels, and that is a short list I think there's less than a handful of stories that show up in all four Gospels. And so if I want to compare all four, all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, this harmony puts them all right next to each other so that I can just quickly reference all, all of those stories and see the differences and all that kind of stuff. Which for a given story, I think makes total sense. W- w- absolutely. And it's absolutely when I will pull out this... Uh, Thomas and Gundry and love it to death. Okay. So we'll put that in the show notes. Um, you can even put the other one. There's another one, Brent. Do you know what the other one is? The Harmony of the Gospels? There's a there's a second one that people love to use. Yeah, I'm not f- I know which one you're talking about, but I've I haven't actually used it myself. All right. Well, he may find it and put that in the show notes too. Who knows? Um the the frustration, one of the one of many frustrations is that it's in the NASB, the new American Standard Bible. Oh, my Thomas and Gundry is NIV. Oh, sweet. 
Why? 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 Does this? Why? Oh, I'm sure it's because uh, in Bible college, NASB was kind of like the required translation. Um, nevertheless, everybody's going to write me their email asking me why I hate the NASB. It's just I, I just don't like it. I don't like its readability. I don't like its parameters. I don't like its accuracy. Everybody talks about how accurate it is. I disagree. Um, so there you go. So don't write me your email. That's all the answer you're going to get. Okay. Excellent. Um, so when I'm reading and you're like, what are you reading out of? I'm out of NASB. Brent, you got the NIV in front of you? Uh, I do of, of John six. I don't have and, my harmony of the gospels in front of me. That is quite all right. I got you covered. And you also have your NET, which we've been using a lot of, of recent. Yes. Yep. All his wonderful footnotes there. Very, very helpful at times. We all have our Bible gateway. Should we need it? Our blue letter Bible, it's all in front of us. Um, this is something I don't think we've ever done on an episode. I have no idea what I'm doing. We're, we're going to workshop. We'll see how long of a conversation this is, Brent. I don't know if it'll be like two hours long or if it'll be 20 minutes long, but let's workshop. <laughs> oh, my, my wife will make sure it's not two hours. Well, I can that's guarantee good. I that. Love that. Okay. That's good. <laughs> um, we're going to workshop what we got here. Okay. And, and we're not going to come to a conclusion. Brent and I are going to workshop it, but we're not going to... I don't think so. I don't think we're going to tie everything up with a bow. I cannot. Do I want to say this? Do I want to say I can't wait to hear everything? Because I I don't know if I want the slew of emails, but I do. Like this is one. Like this is one area where I'm like I can't wait to see what others see that I don't. This has nothing to do with like Bible college degrees or time that we've spent reading academic books. This is why. This is why you study the text together. So we're going to workshop it. People are either going to hate this episode or they're going to love it, and they're just going to be screaming in their car. Something that they see that we don't see, Brent. It's going to be great, and they're just going to be screaming at the <laughs> at the stereo. This passage, this passage. You guys are such idiots. And then they'll write me a much um, a much nicer email later. So it'll be great. I can't wait to hear what you guys see. Does that make sense, Brent? Have I explained that well? I think so. All right. Well, well. Here's the deal. I have, we start with the feeding of the 5,000. It's the first story we're going to deal with. Um, I know, when when I say I don't know what to do with that, I, I know what to do with the, the typical story of the feeding of the 5,000. We did that episode. Brent's going to put that in the show notes. What, it was 115, Brent? 115. Episode one. We did the whole, the typical teaching of the feeding of 5,000. I got what what I think is like a dynamite teaching from my teachers. I passed it on there. I think that's dead on, rock solid for the synoptics. And what are the synoptics, Brent? Remind us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think that's generally what's going on in all three of those stories. Some nuances, sure. But that episode, episode 115, that's your feeding of the 5,000. John does significantly different things, which you would expect him to. Like, he rarely tells any of the same stories. And when he does tell the story... You know he's going to intentionally be telling this story for a different purpose. That's why he included it. He wants you to see something different. And if that sounds blasphemous to you, that's probably because you haven't been on the whole journey with us. So I would recommend going back and listening. to This is a good time to say, listen to the whole thing. You know, go on the whole journey because we bring us up to the, we talk about gospel narrative. We talk about how each gospel had a unique audience and a unique agenda and why those things, and we spend like 100 episodes affirming how, how badly we believe in the inspiration of, like we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. With, with everything that's in me, uh, I, I believe in the inspiration and authority of the text. 
I also believe in thinking super critically because I believe in the inspiration of the text. I want to know what the text is trying to say. And that means I got to think critically and do my homework and do my contextual work. So all we've we've explained all that. And if you've like jumped into our verse by verse journey through John, you're lacking some tools in your toolbox is what I'm trying to say. So if that, if this idea of like, John telling the story differently seems like crazy, ludicrous, out of left field. Um, I, that would be maybe just because we want to go back and review. Anything you'd add to that, Brent, before I dive in? Nope. Just, uh, you know, we'll we'll be waiting here in John uh, while you go back. So, All right. When you get back, we'll still be here. That's that's the nice thing about this podcast is you can... Uh, you can engage it at your own pace. We just we just heard recently of somebody who went through the entire set of like 260 episodes uh, in a month, which is an unbelievable pace. But hey, if that's what you have, if that's what your life has afforded you to do right now, like why not? Uh, you know, we're not going to stop you. So I won't be stopping anybody else for darn sure. All right. Um, Brent, ha- let's just read it. Let's just read this, the, the first story, The Feeding of the 5,000. Read the story out of the NIV, and then I am going to walk through and just, I am looking for all the ways that John, uh, I'll tell you ahead of time what I'm looking for. I'm looking for all the ways that John is completely unique. Like he tells the story significantly, radically differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or he adds details that do not exist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's a lot of them, and I cannot figure out what ties them together, all right? Go ahead and just read the story, Brent, and then we'll go through. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Oh, man. There are so, like, if you're hearing that, you're like, yeah, I've heard this story before. I know this story, Marty. No, not like that. It's different than the other three stories. Like, I understand you might know the John story. That's not my point. My point is, if you're thinking, that's the same story. It's just the same story. No, it's radically a different story. Okay. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to read some because reading helps me think. So after these things, Jesus, I'm at, remember, I'm in the NASB. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, Brent, tell me what we talked about, about the other side. Uh, well, 
I mean, typically you're going to be walking to the other side rather than... Okay, sure. What's on the other side? Tell me about the... Is this like, okay, who cares what side of the lake they're on? Does it make a difference? Well, uh, so where were they coming from? They were coming from... I guess they were coming from Galilee area. So that would Absolutely. put them in the Decapolis area. Yep. And it's going to be different depending on which gospel. And John does all kinds of weird things with time. John does all kinds of weird things with chronology. Like, John is not the step-by-step, follow-my-linear storytelling. John is all kinds of wacky. But yes, looking at the other Gospels, looking at this Gospel, they're coming from the triangle side of the Sea of Galilee. Going to the other side, which is? Uh, Decapolis area. Decapolis. Not not uh, not very Jewish. Not very Jewish. Like, it, that is... Which is the opposite of what we would expect for this story. Exactly. And it, and it is, literally, if you don't believe me, you go pull out your own Harmony of the Gospels or just your own Bible and go back and forth to all the stories. The other stories do not place this story on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They place the feeding of the, what, Brent? The 4,000. The 4,000 on the other side. But John clearly has them going across to the other side, and we'll give more details later in the chapter. That doubles down on this. They are definitely on the other side, and they are coming back across to Capernaum. Now, again, and this is going to be uncomfortable for some of us, I am much less, I am less concerned with what literally historically happened. I am far more concerned with why in the world is John changing this? Now, again, that might make a lot of us uncomfortable and yada, yada, yada. And that's why we spend so much time trying to harmonize. We try to put all these stories together so we don't see the differences. But, in fact, I argue you need to absolutely see the differences because they're so intentional on John's part. Why is John placing them on the other? Is it because of the pagan environment or is it another reason? But John clearly has them going to the other side of the sea. Yeah. And go ahead. Yeah. I guess immediately before this in John is he was in Jerusalem. So like the sometime after this, that this chapter opens with is doing a lot of work. Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff going on elsewhere in the meantime. John does all kinds of funny things with time. Absolutely. Uh, And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. All right. There's some, that's not necessarily totally different. There's some parallels to that. It is worded, but I'm not going to get hung up on that. And Jesus uh, went up on the mountain and sat with his disciples. Do I see any other, does he he go up on a mountain in Matthew here? No. I mean, he does in Matthew 5. That's like almost verbatim the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. But not in the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14. It's not in Mark 6. I'm looking, making sure. Nope, it's not in Luke 9. So going up on a mountain is unique to John. All right. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand, which everything that happens in John is around a festival. It's so weird to me, and it's definitely a part of the motif he's working with. He's connecting the works of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the book of signs. This first half of John, the book of signs, it's often called, is connected to the festivals. The signs are connected to the festivals. It always, and there are definitely other stories. We'll see the Feast of Tabernacles here soon, and we'll see the Feast of Lights and of Dedication, Hanukkah. Like We'll see other festivals, but it just always feels like every time I turn a page of John, it's Passover. Um, 
It was just a few episodes ago in John 3 that Josh was pointing out it was about what time, Brent? Uh, it was the right after the meal, right after yeah. Passover meal. Passover, and he thought it was Lyle Shemarim, and uh, which I'm I'm totally down with. It just feels like it's 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 <laughs> how many Passovers are there in the Gospel of John? He does funny things with time, but he wants to point out that it's Passover, and I I, I ask myself why? Why does he want to point out it's Passover? Why is there a mountain, and why are they crossing a sea? My gut tells me right now, oh, it's Exodus. It's an, it's more Exodus. We have an Exodus motif over and over and over again, but I'm not sure that's going to follow through the whole rest of the, again, if I had an answer here, I would have taught the lesson, but I don't. So I'm going to keep going. Uh, Jesus there, uh, therefore lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now you look at the other gospels. All three other Gospels, very clearly and directly, have the disciples coming to Jesus saying, these people are hungry, you need to let them go so they can find food. In John, there is no discussion from the disciples. It is, let me see the next verse. And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he, what he was intending to do. So in John, this is a total setup. And John goes, excuse me, Jesus goes to Philip to test him. In the other Gospels, that's there's nowhere, nowhere, by the way, no Philip is mentioned. No Andrew is going to be here in a couple verses here. No Andrew, no Philip, just the disciples. Disciples come to Jesus. They're the instigators. And John totally flipped. Now, I understand you can harmonize that. I get that. Is it is it possible that Jesus set this whole thing up? And the disciples came to him and said that to him, and and the whole time he was he knew they would, and they were coming to set, and he was going to set up Philip for this moment. Of course, of course he could. I'm more interested in why John is telling the story the way he is. Why is he not including those details, and he's telling it in such a radically different way? Because if I only had John, I wouldn't have any of that other stuff. I would simply have Jesus setting up a test for Philip. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, again, all this is unique. All of this is unique to John. The names, the disciples. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? A lad. A lad. (laughs) That's unique to the NASB, I think. <laughs> that, that, by the way, another unique element that's not in any of the other Gospels, barley loaves. Oh, it's just it's just loaves in the other ones? Just loaves. Mm. But in this one, barley loaves. Repeated about three or four times in this story. Barley loaves. Barley loaves. Barley loaves. Barley loaves. Now, you can look up the first mention of barley. <gasps> Exodus 9 in the plagues. Is it Exodus? Is this more Exodus? I don't know, but then you look at one of the other mentions of barley loaves, and barley loaves shows up in the feeding of the 100 with the story of Elisha, Brent. Actually, can you look that up? I know I didn't give that to you ahead of time. Go look up uh, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 4, the very end. And let's just read this short little story of Elisha feeding the 100, and tell me it is not just 
strikingly parallel to what John is doing here. Okay, three, just three verses on this whole story. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. All right. Now, I think this may even play into next week's episode and the rest of John 6, but th- that feels very parallel to me. Do you, do you feel some very similar themes in that those three verses, Brent? I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, you've got barley loaves. You have a servant saying, like, what in the world are we going to do with this? Like, that's not going to work. And then you have, they're going to eat their fill. And, and wait, did it say have some left over? Yeah. Yeah. No really... way. I did not even catch that the first time. Oh, my goodness where, gracious. Where, where does the Lord say that, though? Is that somewhere else in the text before this? Or is that just... I think that's just the prophet. Okay. Now, by the way, at the end of this story, what did the people say? I'm asking you to jump around, but this is relevant to me. At the, at the end of the story, the people said... At the end of John? Uh, at the end of... Uh, this story, John six fourteen. when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of the truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Mm. And man, I, I just, I get real thick vibes here that this is supposed to be connected to that story. But for the life of me, I cannot figure out why. Because <laughs> yeah. for the... I don't know why it would be a remez. I don't know what the drosh would be. It doesn't seem to fit because there's such thick Exodus references to me. I, I do not. It, it, is there supposed to be a conversation between Elisha and Exodus? I can't wait to hear what people see because I, but without a doubt, when I hear this, I think barley loaves, barley, barley, barley yeah, loaves. Between the barley loaves and the leftover, like, man, I don't know how you don't. Like, yeah. it, there's, there's no question to me. I know. I know, but I have no idea why. I, so, Brent, you you keep working on that. I don't know. I don't know. And you're watching all the NET footnotes, so that means that nothing interesting is being said. I'm kidding because I'm just like <laughs> blowing through this and just asking Brent to keep up. All right. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these so, so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was uh, there was much grass in the place, so the people sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. Nothing really is jumping out to me here, pretty parallel to the others. I mean, there are some key differences that may be even significant, uh, the but nothing that's... Plenty of grass in that place? Is that a is that an added detail in John? Uh, somewhere he has them sit down on the grass. Grass is mentioned in the others, but plenty of grass, I think, is unique. Well, maybe not. Hold on. Recline on the green grass, uh, Mark 6, and he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. Uh, Matthew 14, and under and ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass. So, yes. Okay. Grass is mentioned in all Gospels except for Luke. Um, and when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. I feel like nothing may be lost is a unique phrase to John. 
I looks like it is to me. Could be wrong. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When, therefore, the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet. I'm assuming that probably says in the NIV, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. What does the NIV say there? Uh, Surely, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then the NET footnote uh, links it to Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, the second Moses uh, passage. Yep. Which, by the way, and the other Gospels, I would say absolutely. I'm getting like heavy Moses vibes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Absolutely. Jesus being the second Moses, especially going up on a mountain and and getting the—and we talked about that in the episode that we linked in the show notes. Five loaves, Torah, two fish, tablets, seven, complete law. Give it to God's people, 5,000. Twelve baskets, there's more—when God—when you let Jesus interpret the law— and give it to you to give to others. There is more than enough to go around for all of God's people. I mean, I'm down with that. But in John, it feels different to me. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. This is unique. Not mentioned in any other Gospels. This He knows that they come to make him. They have intentions to make him king. So what does that have to do? I'm like, golly, what? <laughs> Elisha, like I'm trying to think of Elisha. I'm trying to think of like this whole, like I'm trying to think of Exodus. Like what in the world? Like part of it sounds like the, not the king part, but a little part of it sounds like golden calf. So I'm like, okay, is it the other side? I mean, they went to the other side of the sea. Like I keep going back between Elisha and Exodus. This is such an awkward episode, Brent. I don't know if you feel self-conscious. I do. And like, uh, obviously this is Elisha and not Elijah. But you can't even make a like Moses and Elijah Mount of Transfiguration thing because John doesn't talk about that. Well, and it's not Elijah; it's Elisha. Right, right, right. I'm just saying if you're if you're trying to take like the line of Elijah. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Right, 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 right. To right, Elisha, right. if you're trying to make like a Moses and Elijah thing, uh-huh. it's not uh-huh. even setting up for that because John never mentions it. Wouldn't even think about it. But you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that's where you, where you got done leaving off. And that's all I've, that's all I've got. I don't know what to do with that. So s- somebody write me an email and tell me, s- tell me what I'm missing. I, I want to see, um, the Baymont teaching team is probably going to hear this episode and be like, you are such a nude Nick. Here it is right in front of you. But I, I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost at sea here. All right. Uh, Brent, how about you read us the next story? And speaking and, uh, of the sea, <laughs> oh, I'm lost at sea. <laughs> Great segue. Okay. Uh, walking on water story. Go ahead. Yeah. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Uh, just to reiterate the fact that they were on the Decapolis side. like Exactly. And that's not true to the other Gospels. So absolutely deliberate by John. Crazy, I, crazy. I was thinking for a moment, like, ah, they were in Jerusalem. Like, are they stretching this time and just saying, like, they came back to the Sea of Galilee and they crossed to the, to the, you know, the triangle side. But I think this seals the deal. They're definitely... Definitely flipping the details in the John version of the 5,000. So anyway, um, they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, 
It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. Uh, and it's just the funny idea of like initially unwilling to bring your own rabbi into the boat. Um, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. All right, we'll stop there. The, those last three verses are technically a part of Reed's. Uh, Reed and I are going to do an episode next week, and that's a part of next week's discussion, but I was actually going to ask you to read that, so I'm glad you did, because the whole conversation about boats is completely unique and so odd. Like, it's just so weird. They're on the other side, apparently, <laughs> and I don't know why they would even be over there, but they're on the other side of the lake, and Jesus and his disciples leave in uh, over nightfall and they wake up and they realize that he's gone because his boat's gone. Like what is up with all these boats? Like all these people all came over and like, I just don't get it. And then, and then all these boats come over from Tiberias and apparently the crowd is just like, thanks for the boats. We're all taking them. It's just so weird. Like all the mention of boats. <laughs> it's just so odd to me. I just do not know. It's such a small, it's just a short telling of the walking on water. Um, let me go back here. Let's see. Brent, I want you to look up something in the NASB. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say the uh, the note about how when Jesus got into the boat, they immediately reached the shore. And that feels like a very Mark style detail. Yep. Did it? Did you say there's an NET note there? Um, I did not say that. And oh. there is not, apparently. Okay. Oddly well, enough. Oddly enough. Um, I want you to look at, in Blue Letter Bible, will you look at um, verse 18? In the NASB, it says, and the sea began to be stirred up. And I'm curious if it's the same phrase um, in John 5, where the angel stirs up the waters. Mm, let's see. The sea arose. Uh, which is going to be D Diego, something okay. like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Where does that appear? This is the only place it appears in the Book of John. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. So no, necess- like direct parallel there necessarily, and it was in that verse that isn't even in your early manuscripts to begin with. So, um, when the in- evening came, go ahead. Yeah, in, um, let's see, let me just double check here. So in the other Gospels, it's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all of those uses, it is a person waking up from sleep. Right. Okay. So in this case, it's the sea. But then in, it also appears a couple times in Second Peter, and that is more of a um, stirring up your mind kind of sense. So yeah, not a lot of consistent usage here, but it's only used, it only appears seven times. Okay. Very interesting. Don't know if there's anything unique about the Septuagint usage, if it has any, but um, yeah, it's just fascinating. I, I don't know, because if you just take this story, this story doesn't tell the Peter. Matthew is the only gospel writer that talks about Peter walking on water. Um, 
It's relatively parallel outside of that to the other gospels. Um, it's the it's all the boat talk that is so interesting. Every time you say boat, I think of Bodie McBoatface. I don't know if you know that story. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> uh, it's some like science ship that uh, I don't know Denmark or something made, and and they put it out to a public vote on what to name it in the. <laughs> <laughs> vote i don't know some some people got together and they named it Bodie mcboatface and they're like yeah we're not actually doing that but <laughs> right yeah uh boats yeah so there's no discussion in john like matthew and mark both make the point like this whole walking on water thing would have made a whole lot of sense if they just learned the lesson of the feeding of the five thousand. john doesn't mention that at all he simply says, when they saw, when he said, it is I, do not be afraid, then they were willing to put him in the boat. Um, different. It's different significantly than Matthew and Mark. Now, the whole rest of John 6 will be about loaves, bread, bread of life. So maybe John's toying with the same kind of lesson, but it sure is going to be a long discourse and a whole lot different than the other discourse we have in the synoptics. So... I don't have any thunderous differences or observations in the walking on water portion. Um, it's it's the feeding of the five thousand, which is so it's so radically different to me, and I cannot figure out. And I am I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna regret having everybody email, but I also I, I also want to know like I want I want to see what people see. Um, we're gonna we're gonna task the Bema listeners to figure out what you think John is doing. Is he drawing on Exodus? Is he drawing on Elisha? Something else? Um, what is John is purposely, and he seems to, like, I want to say Exodus. I feel like everything before this has been Exodus. I feel like everything coming after this is Exodus. So I want to make it Exodus, but I can't figure out what the connection is. I mean, I see them going across the sea, and I think Red Sea, and then I see them wanting to come back, and I wonder, especially with the ensuing conversation we're going to talk about next week, is Jesus saying that they don't want to leave Egypt? Like he had that conversation with Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to go through your exodus. They don't want to go through an exodus. He's going to tell them you don't want, you don't actually want to eat this bread. You just want the bread. Like you just want the physical bread. You don't actually want the spiritual reality. So is he, is there a, maybe Reed will have all kinds of insight next week. Who knows? Um, is there a, we cross the Red Sea, but, but now we're going back. We're going back across the sea. We're going back to Egypt because they want to go back to Egypt in the Exodus story. Is that Jesus's point? You don't actually want to go to the promised land. You don't want to be born again. You don't, that's kind of where my brain is at right now. If I had to choose, I'm, that's probably where I'm landing the plane but it doesn't make any of those details that I pointed out today. It doesn't tie them together necessarily or make make it make any more sense than otherwise. So, I man, I just do not know. I do not know. I mean, the themes, the theme of the feeding of the 5,000 in John is all about the disciples. Like, this is about the disciples. He's He's come to test Philip and the disciples. This is not about the hunger of the crowds or all the disciples. Like, this is a very intimate this is a much more intimate story in John than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not just about all the disciples. This is about Philip and Andrew, I guess you could say. Um, and by the way, if it helps us, Philip's going to be 
a very prominent John character. We'll talk about that before we're done studying John. But John's the only one to talk about Philip. The other gospel writers will mention him in the list of disciples. But John is the only gospel writer to give us any Philip stories, any Philip stories. Nobody else talks about Philip. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell people on our Turkey trip, I believe that's because John is the pastor to Asia. He's stationed in Ephesus and other places in, in, the, um, in Asia and Asia Minor, biblical Asia and Asia Minor. And one of the people that lives right around the corner is guess who? Brent? Philip. Absolutely, it's going to be Philip, and which makes sense. Like if John's writing a gospel to a very unique audience, uh, the, the audience of Asia and Asia Minor, well, Philip is one of the guys that they know. Like they know Philip. Like he, he's the pastor right around the corner. And so you can see why John would very deliberately tell stories about Philip. Now, the other thing that I'm fully aware of as well, and I talked about this when we talked about John earlier, is John will do all kinds of things with Torah, but he's simultaneously doing all kinds of things with culture. And it could be that all the answers to my questions lie in some culture I'm not picking up, some cultural reference that I am ignorant of. And if I had that, well, then it would become clear why John is shaping the narrative into that story to make a greater point to his Greco-Asian world that he's a part of. That would not surprise me at all. And then maybe the Elisha reference even makes, like, that key connection could unlock everything, and I'm just unaware of it. I, I don't have anything in my sources. I looked through all my texts and my sources. It, it, everything was just pretty much straight exegesis, not a whole lot of context, so nothing scratched that pardes, itch, or any of those things. I don't know. You seen anything else that's interesting, Brent, before we just call this an awkward ending and get out of here? No, and I did check the Septuagint and that uh, that word for the sea rising up, that word is not in the Old Testament at all. So, really? Fascinating. <laughs> nothing. Okay. Nothing there. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. And and there, I, I must, yeah, I don't even know. I have all these assumptions, but I don't have any answers. <laughs> I will say this, as uh, Brent peruses some footnotes and any other interesting thing that he's looking at, I, I will say um, that this uh, this is this is the challenge of a verse-by-verse journey, because there are still passages that I don't know. I've never, and all my, all my tra- I mean, I could preach a sermon if somebody assigned me this. I, I could come up with a sermon to preach on a Sunday. But as far as like thorough, deep, Bema-esque type study. There are there are stories in the Bible that I and in all my years of studying, and I have looked at them, and I've looked at them for a long time. I don't necessarily know exactly what to do with it. There are still those stories out there, and I love that what the Jewish tradition has taught me is to dance. Like I dance because uh, I, I I dance for the day that I'll discover it, and I know that in the Western mind we get so frustrated when we don't know when we don't know what to do with it. And we, we feel like we're supposed to, and so we get angry with ourselves. We get angry with the process. And in the Jewish mind, you dance because that just means that there's more to discover. And someday when the time is right and God so chooses, he'll show you something new and you'll understand that story. And that will be an amazing day. And so we dance today for the day that's going to show up later. And um, and 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 you're just getting kind of a chance to see that. The verse-by-verse journey is always challenging because you run into these stories and and there's other hard chapters. John 6 is one of the most difficult chapters in the gospels, I think, in my opinion. Uh Reed and I have been working on next week's episode for a while as well. And it's no it's no 
walk in the park. Uh, we're not going to have a whole bunch of answers. John 6 is difficult. Um, frankly, John 7 and John 8, there is this whole little stretch here in John where he has all of these discourses. And we tend to just kind of do a, a Peshat-level exegesis of them, make a bunch of statements about Jesus's Christology, and it just it just totally ignores like the deeper motifs that we're like seeing and learning about now. And so that's what I want to get at. I want to get at like what is John doing underneath it all. I don't want to give some surface. I, I want to get down down deep where we've been taught there's 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 gold in them there hills like i i want to get i want to get down into that stuff so and i don't know i don't know on this and that's i actually have no problem having an episode where i get to model that today i don't know and all my time that i've spent with john six and we're going to be in a little rough patch here as far as marty's concerned because <laughs> john seven and john eight it's not going to be my like I love this about John, but it's not my strongest material. I'm like, man, what is that about? What is going on? John is deep. Like John has some stuff. And um, so, yeah, there you go. Did you find anything, Brent, and all that? Oh, I tried to well, kill some time for you. What did you find? I, just thinking of the um, the chronology of John, uh, there's, there's one note that's just going back and forth on different scholarly debates that have been swirling around this story for some time. And and uh, it concludes with no rearrangement can solve all the geographical and chronological problems in John. <laughs> yep, it's true. It's so true. Yep. Whatever whatever he's doing is not meant to be unraveled into a, a simple chronological story. Like it's just not. That's not what's happening here. So it has confounded scholars for centuries. Yep. And so I, I doubt that Brent and Marty on the Bayma podcast are going to like nail it down today. <laughs> There we go. That was our that was our pass. Uh, yeah, I, I I mean I don't know. There's lots of little potential threads to follow, but nothing certainly nothing that's gonna break this open. I am so interested to read what others find. I I will get most of your emails. Sometimes our contact form fails us. Just know I am likely not going to be able to respond. I may have to like make a commitment to myself. I'm not going to respond to any of them or else I'm just going to to not be emotionally healthy. But I, I am so interested to read what other people see. So I may not respond to these particular emails for this episode. When you write me, just put in the subject of the message. Just put episode. What episode is this going to be, Brent? 265. Just put episode 265. And I, I'll like put them in their own little category and folder. And I will enjoy looking through all of it. Um just know I may not respond to you. I, I hate that. I love to respond to people. They take the time to write me. I love to take the time to respond. But um, I cannot wait to see what you guys find. Uh, there's going to be some just beautiful observations, and I'm sure I'm going to learn something. Yep. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll – I mean, maybe Josh may do his own episode. Maybe we'll do an episode with Josh. I don't know. Who knows what we're going to get back, but we will. we may come back and talk about this. So – We've done it before. We'll see. We'll do it again. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, um, I, I'd say probably for this, you're probably going to need more than what Twitter is going to allow. So uh, go to go to use our <laughs> use our contact form, and that will give you uh, more space. Do not discuss episode two sixty five on Twitter with me. <laughs> I mean, you can. Maybe it's like you you idiots. It's uh, Leviticus four. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, sure, right, right. Yeah. If that's all you need to say, then <laughs> Twitter's then Twitter fine. away. That's right. 
well, anyway, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, BamonDiscipleship.com. Everything you need is going to be there. Uh, so thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.